Welcome, welcome. Uh, this is first of all, apologies for my cold. I still have it. I had to host a, a, a live taping in front of a live audience uh, of a show last night that we'll be doing in a couple of weeks or airing in a couple of weeks. And so I made my voice even worse. But, you know, we'll just see how far we can take this. Fortunately, we have sort of, in case of emergency, break glass. Uh, Frankie Graziano is uh, sitting right next to me. He's going to be a guest on the show today. Of course, he's a reporter for WNPR. You already know his name and his voice. Um, We're going to tell you a little bit about this show. The first thing I want to tell you is, and I said this before the news, too, they're like people who just refuse to listen to anything about sports. I mean, and they are otherwise rational people. And we say, well, we're doing a show about the sports thing. And they go, well, I'm not going to listen because I don't like that. And I sort of feel like you're not allowed to do that, particularly with this show. We're going to talk about the WNBA. And so, I mean, this is sort of something which has quite a bit of other social baggage along with it. It's not just it's not going to be a lot of hot takes entirely, at least not entirely. Uh, And our second segment is this amazing story about um, a baseball league, a professional baseball league in Mexico that was really for Mexican citizens, actual citizens and residents of Mexico, and what happened when they loosened up uh, the requirements, loosened up the eligibility standards so that uh, people from from America, from the United States, who are of Mexican heritage, uh, could join. It turns out it hasn't necessarily been uh, a very popular move. Uh, and then towards the end of the show, we will talk about the baseball playoffs in a way that you, if you hate sports, will find off-putting. So at that point, you are allowed to leave. But you're not allowed to leave right now. Uh, also with us is Lindsay Gibbs, who covers the Washington Mystics for The Athletic. Uh, she's the co-host of the feminist sports podcast, Burn It All Down. She's joining us by Skype. Um, so, Frankie, I'm going to have you get us going. The reason we're doing this is that the WNBA uh, finals are underway. And one of the two teams in the finals is our own Connecticut Sun. So tell us about them. The Connecticut Sun, interestingly enough, they're playing in their first WNBA final in 15 years. And it's it's one of those cool things because I guess with your theme of not liking sports, liking sports, if you're in Connecticut and you don't like basketball, it's probably something wrong with you. Um, but here... Um, man, this is the team to watch. It's a team that can shoot the lights out. It's a team that plays very well together. They've known each other for years. They've started pretty much every game together this year. So it's a fun team to watch. It's a close team. And um, this kind of series against the Mystics, um, it's it's really a good matchup for them because of how strong uh, their best player is on the old boards. But I'll let uh, Lindsey Gibbs get into that. Yeah, before we go to, before we go to Lindsey, I mean, I, I want to just pause and, and linger over something that you said because – One of the things we know about basketball and soccer is they're a little bit more like jazz than other sports. The players really have to know each other. They have to interact well. You can have, as we've seen in professional basketball, three or four major free agent signings, big superstars, and you put them together on the court and they can't do anything because they they don't understand each other. They don't. There's the chemistry is all wrong. This is a very chemistry based uh, uh, kind of sport. So one of the advantages the Connecticut Sun has, and maybe you could say just a little bit more about it, their starting five. First of all, they kind of mainly use that starting five, and this start they really know each other. They really know each other. They play well together. If you watch the last game, they got out to a hot start. 
because of how well they know each other. And they have a lot of fun out there. I mean, if you listen to Courtney Williams, who's kind of like their their spirit animal out there on the on the floor, she's taking shots, and when she nails these shots, she's talking trash to her opponents, and her uh, and her teammates love it. Um, they can all shoot well, and that's I think that's kind of like a key. Uh, Shakina Strickland, uh, Shakina Strickland, she hasn't always started for the team, but um, she shot forty three percent from three last year, and since she came uh, to the to the team like four years ago, they've really been a hot shooting team. I mean, even their six six forward can take uh, shots from deep, but sometimes I kind of think that could work to their detriment. Not necessarily the um, not necessarily the chemistry, but the fact that they're so confident with their shooting. Uh, they had a huge uh, run last game where they were like missed nine shots in a row, and John Quell took a pretty bad shot from three. I thought, at least from watching it. So I think sometimes they can get too confident shooting, but it's a team with, with a lot of confidence, and they don't like when you say that they're not a team made of uh, megastars or role players. Right. Well, we should say that they've used that as a kind of chip on their shoulders, right? They have a little slogan that's disrespect, but the CT at the end of that is capitalized, as in Connecticut, right? Yeah, even even if you say anything bad about the Sun on Twitter, they've got one of those office gifs of, like, Ryan. Remember the guy Ryan from The Office? He takes notes. Oh, yeah. They do that every time you say something bad about them. It's a little bit of a rallying cry, too. I mean, uh, the funny thing about it was Jasmine Thomas a couple of weeks ago was a guest on a halftime show, and the host and the analyst uh, were uh, talking about the team having uh, no megastars and role players, and uh, she was kind of stone-faced throughout, and that's where Disrespect was born. All right. Uh, we're going to go over to Lindsay right now, but this has been a report from... No, we don't have it ready yet. Uh, all right, it's not working. Frankie has it would this... sound deeper and more disturbed yeah. today with uh, the way your voice sounds. Maybe Accu Frankie would reflect that. Exactly. So, Lindsay Gibbs, uh, we, let's talk a little bit about the Mystics. Um, there are some names there that would be familiar to some Connecticut sports fans, ranging from the coach, but also the big star. Maybe we should talk about the big star, Elena Deladonna. Um, who's banged up uh, again. I mean, we could do a whole show about Elena Deladonna, but talk a little bit about what her role is on the Mystics. Yeah, I mean, Elena Deladon is a two-time WNBA MVP, one of the times being this year. She was the first WNBA player to ever have a 50-40-90 season, shooting above 50% from the field, 40% from three, and 90% from the free throw line. I mean, she's a legend of the game. I mean, you could say legend in the making, and her legend will continue to grow. But she's already one of the greats. Um, And she's had injury troubles throughout her career. And in the very first quarter, about three minutes into the game, she went up for a layup, and her back pulled, and she immediately called for a sub left, didn't uh, didn't go to the bench, went straight back for treatment and um, was held out questionable for back spasms. And now they're saying she had an MRI yesterday. She has a small herniated disc in her back. Um, I did see her at practice today. I'm actually just outside the Mystics practice facility, just left there. Um, but she was not participating in practice. Um, they're not going to know her status until maybe Saturday. But they're going forward, you know, I think they're they're practicing as if she won't be there 
while hopeful that she will be back. But this could be a series-changing injury for sure. All right. This is literally the only part of this show that I know anything about. But uh, I, I feel like we should just pause and say to a lot of people here in Connecticut, she's the recruit. She was the most heralded recruit uh, out of high school in women's basketball since Candace Parker. She committed to UConn. She dropped out after two days of summer school. But the reason was this incredible relationship she has with, this, with her sister, who has cerebral palsy, autism, deafness, and blindness. So this is not a person that you can communicate with in any way except in the presence of that person. FaceTime is not going to cut it. Uh, and so she she needs to be with that sister. That sister needs her to, to be able to smell and touch her, which is the way that she understands things. She So she drops out of basketball. She comes back briefly as a college volleyball player for one year uh, and then comes back as a college basketball player, then has two flare-ups of Lyme disease during her otherwise stellar college career. Um, and, and Lindsay, even today, she makes different choices from other WNBA players because the pay is not great in the WNBA. In the offseason, most people, uh, if they can, they go and they play overseas to pick up some more money. And this is not something that she's going to do. Again, Lindsay, for the same reason, right? Yeah, for the most part, it's because she wants to be able to spend time with her sister and she managing her health is um, a little bit trickier because of Lyme disease um, than it is for other players. She's had her Lyme disease under control. She did have a flare up flare up of it last year. Um, This year she's been healthy. She hasn't um, dealt with a flare up, but it's one of those diseases where you wake up one morning and you know, it's changed. You can be doing, there are certainly ways you can manage it and improve your odds of being healthy, but it's never going to completely go away unless you new treatments come up. So yeah, she, the way she has to take care of her body and her health. It's um, the the amount of stuff she goes through is just pretty staggering. The other thing is that the um, the mystics were successful in getting her to consider stuff like meditation, stuff that she initially rejected as maybe a little bit too woo woo for a hard nosed basketball player like her. But that seems to have helped, right? Yeah, she's definitely started focusing more on the mental aspect of the game, and. Um, I think that's helped her as a leader. I think that's helped her as a player. She talks a lot about how the patience she's developed on the court is making her is, is helped her have this legendary season. And of course, she's also had to have a staggering amount of off court patience as well, dealing with injuries last year. Uh, the Mystics were in the WNBA semifinals against the Atlanta Dream when she fell and suffered a right knee contusion. She did end up coming back from the semifinals, and they won that series. She played in the finals, but she was about 70% that whole time um, and was just playing through pain and basically took the entire offseason. She wasn't able to play until right before this season started. So she's just had to have a lot of patience as far as recovery, as far as figuring out her role within this uh, team full of weapons and, you know, in order to manage her health. Um, Frankie, as long as you're doing backstories and sort of off-the-court stories, uh, one of the players for the Connecticut Sun um, is from the Bahamas and has taken a pretty big role in post-hurricane relief efforts. Dorian hit the Bahamas, what, about almost a month ago, and it, and it really devastated, like, the northernmost islands over there. Jonquil Jones is originally from Freeport, um, and just above that is the Abaco Islands. 
her parents live in the Abaco Islands uh, now. I understand from talking to her father, I got to I got to see him a couple of weeks ago. He said that they were like in the process of moving, but obviously not before the hurricane happened. Uh, her dad, Preston, was at uh, was at practice a couple of weeks ago, has got to see her play. And um, he had told me that they were riding the storm out in the Bahamas and he watched his Jeep flip a couple of times outside. He had to have his uh, daughter and uh, his wife and a few of the nieces and nephews go in the bathroom while him and somebody else were trying to, I guess, knock out some windows to try to save everybody. It was a pretty harrowing story to hear. Um, anyway, John Quell is now trying to raise money uh, for her home country. Uh, she's trying to raise about $50,000. It looks like she's almost there, $47,000. So it's quite amazing to see her uh, do this while she's playing for a championship. And if I might add, for a team that a lot of people say don't have megastar, she's got a megastar personality, number one. And uh, I think she is a budding superstar. As you could tell, she's a two-time all-star and two-time rebounding champion. And we saw how good she was in the WNBA game, too. Finals. Yeah, and I think people who don't follow sports all that closely, if they try to relate to something like that, they do. They want to know about people. They want to learn more about some of the people on these teams. Lindsay, you recently profiled a, a player for the Mystics who uh, is Belgian and who was asleep at the moment she was drafted. Tell us about that. Yeah, so this is Emma Miesman. She's another uh, star on the Mystics team. And, yeah, she was – so foreign players have a little bit different eligibility requirements. They can – um, as long as they're 20, their first year, uh, by the end of their first year in the WNBA, they're allowed to go ahead and declare for the draft. Whereas if you go through the NCAA, the rules are different. So she, you know, was a good player in Belgium. She was playing professionally in France when she was 19. You know, her agent said, let's just enter your name in the draft and kind of see what happens. She knew what night the WNBA draft was, but like really wasn't, it didn't know how to follow it. So she just went to sleep. <laughs> In Belgium, and her, she woke up to a text message saying, you know, the Washington Mystics selected you uh, uh, 19th overall in the second round. And she just kind of shrugged and went back to sleep. She didn't even know if she was going to come to training camp because sometimes foreign players, um, you know, will stay overseas and develop a little bit while the team hangs on to their rights uh, in the uh, WNBA or NBA. And she finally decided that she would go and take a chance because she wanted an excuse to put off her university exams, which she wasn't mm. quite prepared for. So she came over here for training camp in uh, 2013 and uh, made the Mystics roster and two years later was an all-star. Um, this season, she has just been spectacular. She's one of the best players in the league. You, you feel as though, at least in the playoffs, particularly with Deladon uh, not 100% or even close, that, that she may be the MVP uh, for the Mystics. She certainly was in that semifinal series against the Las Vegas Aces. She came up huge. You know, she didn't play for the Mystics last season because um, the the Basketball World Cup was in the fall. So she wanted to stay with her Belgian national team. Um, and the Mystics made the finals. And they've always been saying she was the missing piece last year. You know, if they had had her, they, they might have been able to beat Seattle um, like that. She's who they need. And she certainly showed that this year. In the first two games against the Las Vegas Aces, she scored a combined 57 points just by herself. So uh, she's she's remarkable. And yes, she will have a huge role. She will be in the starting lineup if Deladon can't go. She will be playing um, at the four. And um, she's... Uh, 
she's quite a good. If you have her subbing in for Deladon, you're doing you're doing pretty well. So I'm going to have both of you talk about the kind of umbilical cord that connects these teams, and I think that is the the coach uh, of the Mystics, who was Frankie, the coach of the Connecticut Sun for I think ten years. Ten years, he became the winningest coach in WNBA history uh, by the time he left there. And what was interesting back then, Colin, I was producing uh, games for CPTV Sports, the Sun Games, and when they essentially let Tebow go, a lot of people around, Mike Tebow, the coach, a lot of people around the team kind of would say that uh, that was the that was it for their uh, chances at competition over the next couple of years. And it's kind of sad because it did lead to futility. I mean, they didn't make the playoffs for four straight years until Miller got here. So uh, that was a, I would say that's a big uh, milestone in the history of the Connecticut Sun in their 16 years of existence was when Tebow left. Although, Lindsay, there may be ways in which Mike Tebow is also feeling kind of snake bit here by injuries and sort of getting close enough to really fog the trophy with his breath, but not quite getting there. Yeah, I mean, he has, uh, you know, he has over 300 WNBA wins and counting, like you said, the winningest coach, but doesn't have a WNBA championship. This will be his fourth time in the finals. So he went twice with Connecticut. The second year uh, in 2005, which they were really the favorites, Lindsey Whalen gets injured, and he's dealing with an injury uh, to his star point guard. Last year, as I mentioned, Deladon was not 100% in the finals. And then for this to happen this year in his press conference after game two, um, he looked gutted and he just said, you know, this is the nightmare that I've been having, that this would happen. You know, the Mystics were favored and not because Connecticut's disrespected, (laughs) but because they've had a historically great offensive season. Um, You know, they were, they are the number one seed. They won the most games. They've uh, their offense just, just set record after record this season. And um, nobody was taking Connecticut lightly, but Washington at, full strength is is a tough train to, for any team to stop but without the mvp it's a different story altogether and you know also for deladon this is her third time in the finals we i told you what happened last year and then in 2014 when she was with the chicago sky and in the finals she also had back issues there so for the two of them to now be facing this again it's just it just it's just hard to watch you know it just it uh you want for both of them to have that shot where they're fully you know the stars and and Deladon herself are fully healthy um but similarly Frankie this is seems like a really this Connecticut Sun team they buzzed through uh, their opponent the Los Angeles Sparks uh, in the semifinals uh, three three zero I mean I don't know if we've even mentioned this the series is tied one one <laughs> excuse me one one right now um so this is and the matchup of two very strong teams. And when I hear Lindsay talk about, you know, what's going on with the team and 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 not having Deladon, it kind of makes you think that if the Sun were to win this championship this year, it would kind of be, I guess, uh, almost a little bit of luck without having Deladon there. I mean, it's really going to it's really going to come down to whether or not Deladon plays because if you'll remember in game 1, John Quell Jones gets one offensive report rebound. She's the best offensive rebounder in the league pretty much. And she only gets one in the first game and then in game two she gets nine. So that tells you how big of a how big of a uh, a factor that is. One other stat, Connecticut fifteen and two at home this year. So I gotta expect they'll win at least one game at home. Um they could win the championship, but if Deladon plays, maybe it's the Mystics in five, something like that. I don't know. Either team would be winning its first uh, WNBA championship ever. So that's also interesting. So I mean I guess I want to end I'm sorry to be ending with this because it's it's 
uh, I think this is a very positive story, but it's going to be a little negative. There's a way, Lindsay, in which, you know, I mean, I I think I'm the problem. I'm symbolic of the problem. I'm kind of a sports fan, but I really don't watch the WNBA. In fact, I'm kind of doing this episode partly so I will be woken up (laughs) to watch this series because the more that we talk about it, the more exciting and interesting it sounds. But somehow or other, this sport or this branch of the sport has really struggled, I think, to gain anything close to to parity with certainly with with the men's uh, NBA. Maybe you can say a little bit about that and the frustrations for the players about that. Yeah, I think there's frustrations, but I think there's also we've seen a lot of progress lately. And look, I'm also a person I did not grow up watching women's basketball, grew up watching sports, but nobody really ever told me about women's basketball. You know, it wasn't it wasn't part of the highlight shows I was watching. You know, I didn't see it a lot in the paper. I didn't you know, I didn't see it on SportsCenter. And so I think it's just part of, you know, people gaining accessibility, learning that these storylines that these people are you know, just as intriguing as in the men's game. And the sport itself is really great. You know, Um, it's not going to happen overnight where it's going to be equal to the men's game. And I don't think um, that that's necessarily like even a realistic goal for right now. I think the goal should be just for people to tune in, give it a shot. It happens during the summer where, you know, there's not a lot of uh, NBA. So if there's no NBA. So if you're a basketball fan looking for something in the summer, it's the perfect thing to watch get invested in a team learn a little bit about the storylines and honestly like I said I came in this just as a sports fan and I I I got hooked um because it's just it's just great basketball great players great stories and um you know I think that each year uh the viewership is growing a little bit more we're seeing more media um start to uh, tune in, start to give this sport coverage, and the players themselves uh, via social media um, are really finding their voices and becoming part of the mainstream conversation. NBA players are doing a great job um, because they like the sport. They mm. love the game, and they're going to a lot of the games, and that's helping bring visibility. So I just think that it's part, you know, everyone can do their their little part to, you know, uh, bring it some attention, um, bring it some lift, and um, it's, it's not, you're not going to be disappointed. So we should say game three is going to be at the Mohegan Sun, a home game, as Frankie said, on Sunday at 3.30 on ABC. You know, Frankie, I think in a way also here in Connecticut, we did, quote unquote, grow up watching women's basketball. We may have gotten a little bit spoiled, though. I mean, we watched this team that was sort of just untouchable most of the time. Uh, and somehow or other, we didn't entirely transfer those loyalties to the Connecticut Sun. Uh, I, I can say that, uh, you know, we have a, one of the most winningest coaches in the game and in, in, in the state uh, in Gino Oriema, and he would say that they don't get the respect that they deserve because of the fact in terms of facilities and all that because of the fact that they win. But, yeah, I mean, it, it's it's important to give the Sun a chance because especially since Kurt Miller came here, they've been so good playoffs three years in a row. They're finishing at the top of the league pretty much in every year. So it's something to think about. Another thing, if you're a Connecticut sports fan and you're thinking about watching, Bria Holmes. Uh, she played at Hill House in New Haven, won some championships there. A great story. Uh, one of those kids that Oriema didn't recruit, unfortunately, that a lot of people would hope that um, eventually UConn, uh, as a strong basketball program, will take some more players from Connecticut. But nonetheless, she plays a, a, a very important role off the bench for the Sun, and uh, if they win, it would be great to see Bria and a New Haven kid get a championship. Isn't Morgan Tucker on the bench, too? For the Morgan Tuck as well, yes. Yeah. Uh, what were you saying, Lindsay? 
yeah, I was going to say Morgan Tuck too, of course, uh, a couple of UConn championships <laughs> for her as well. So, um, You know, as long as he's mentioning facilities, and this is a really annoying thing, uh, and we're going to have to wrap this up pretty soon just to get to the other topics, but Lindsay, one thing that you've covered is some of these teams, some of these WNBA teams, they get bounced out of their own facilities because something else is coming in. Yeah, um, what you see a lot in the playoffs is um, these um, big stadiums and arenas will, you know, schedule concerts or schedule other things for playoff dates, you know, not knowing if the team's going to make it. And they figure they can make more money on these concerts. And so they kick out the WNBA players. And it's really tough. Last year, the Washington Mystics, during their playoff run, um, they were kicked out of Capital One Arena, which is where they were playing. It's also where the Capitals and the Washington Wizards play. They were kicked out because they, they had scheduled renovations for that time and you know couldn't do it any other time. So they had to play at um, GW, at George Washington, for the semifinals. And then for the final game they hosted, they had to go all the way uh, about 45 minutes south into Northern Virginia for that game. And so at American University, I believe it was. So it was just staggering the way they had to move around, didn't really have a home court uh, advantage. And, you know, you would never see that happen to, um, you know, the men's teams. And while I understand that there's economic forces at play here, you also have to realize, like, most of these arenas are pretty subsidized by taxpayer dollars. Um, and so, you know, what are the priorities, you know, we're putting into play here? Right. Uh, so we have to end here. But Lindsay Gibbs, you've been a wonderful guest. I hope you'll come back. You're not an astronaut, are you? No, not, we not even no, close we, we, don't allow astro- <laughs> we don't allow astronauts on the show. But you're a terrific guest. I hope you'll come back uh, for more uh, of these kinds of shows. Uh, Lindsay Gibbs covers the Washington Mystics for The Athletic. And she's the co-host of the feminist sports, cast, uh, sports podcast, Burn It All Down. Uh, also with us, uh, making one of his many storied appearances, is... Accufrating. See, we finally got that thing fixed. Um, Frankie Graziano, thank you so much for joining us. We're going to take a break. We're going to come back. We're going to switch from basketball to baseball, but not not just baseball. A story about national identity and a story about a different kind of friction taking a, a place along the border between Mexico and the United States. You'll find that I have gone, but tomorrow may rain so I'll follow the sun. All right, so um, we thought about making this entirely a show about the WNBA uh, and about women's basketball, and but there were some other stories that were so intriguing we couldn't turn away from them. Specifically, Jonathan McPants, the producer of this episode, couldn't turn away from them. One of them is by our next guest, Joseph Bean Khan, uh, a Los Angeles-based writer who covers tech and culture. His September 18th story for the publication Gen is Home and Away. American ballplayers are flooding the Mexican League, which sort of gives away the topic, but not really. This is a lot more complicated than that. So first of all, welcome to our show, Joseph. Thank you for having me, Colin. So let's begin. We have to, You have to begin by explaining what this is, the Liga Mexicana de Baseball. What, what is that? Yeah, so uh, there are two Mexican baseball leagues, and uh, one of them is called the Pacific League, and it plays in the winter and has long been a place where high-level minor leaguers or major leaguers will kind of play in the offseason. The other league, the Liga Mexicana de Baseball, is 
plays at the same time as the major leagues and the minor leagues. And for most of its hundred year history was kind of the place where a native Mexican kid could grow up, could play. There's, uh, there are currently, I believe 12 teams there, 12 to 16 teams. And it's just kind of a, you know, league around, around the country where for a long time, native Mexican guys could play. No, uh, yeah, go ahead. And then in uh, in recent years, as as you said, as the sub had explained, uh, there's been a flood of Mexican American players, either former major leaguers, uh, high level minor leaguers, who have started to play in the league, and it's kind of changed the face of the league. It's turned it into a much more competitive league, but also a place where. You know, if you're growing up in Tijuana or Sonora, it becomes more and more difficult to play professional baseball. Right. After all the rhetoric about uh, Mexicans coming up from the South and taking American jobs, we have American baseball players, Mexican-American baseball players, heading South to take the jobs of players who whose aspiration had been to play in this league. So they, they changed the requirements, right? They relaxed eligibility. You could play in this league if you had a Mexican ancestor, which, you know, opened, I think, the door pretty wide. The question would be, um, what would the attraction be if you're a prospect at you know single A or double A north of the border? Why do you decide that you're going to go south and play in this league? That's a great question. I mean, the minor leagues are kind of famously uh, impossible thing to get through. Uh, you know, each major league team has three to four minor league teams. The best of the best slowly move up through it, and then maybe you get a major league contract. But uh, the climb through the minor leagues is far from uh, a dream life. You're paid very little. Some places you stay with host families. You're in small towns all around the country. So unless you are you know, a top 10 pick, unless you could throw 98 miles per hour, a lot of the time you get caught in single A or double A and spend a decade there not making much money, and then your life in baseball is over. So, so a lot of the guys who have decided to play in Mexico aren't probably wouldn't play in the major leagues, or maybe they played a few years and then left, and now this is kind of a second life they could have. So you, you decided what you really needed to tell this story was one player, one player through whom to, to narrate. You found uh, a, a pitcher uh, from north of the border who had gone south of the border. Uh, introduce us to this man. Yeah, so actually, I mean, when I started looking for this story, I knew I wanted to write a sports story about an American playing abroad under Trump. I mean, I think as anyone who's traveled abroad and, uh, during the Trump administration, it's a crazy time <clears throat> to be a representative of America elsewhere. And uh, I looked at basketball leagues, you know, soccer leagues, everything. And finally, I found Manny, Manny Beretta. And he's one of those characters you meet and you realize, oh, my God, like this is the protagonist of the story you want to tell. And I mean, initially, I kind of thought the story would be a simpler one. I thought it would be. What is it like to be this representative representative of America abroad at this time when it's hard to be proud of America? <laughs> and instead, it became this story about this guy who, when he, Manny was born 
uh, in Prescott, Arizona. But by the time he was six months old, his family had moved back to northern Mexico. And he didn't move to 30 minutes north of the border until the age of seven years old. So he's this really interesting character to look at what American identity means, what Mexican identity means, and what it means that this guy is kind of the symbol of these Americans coming south and taking Mexican jobs. Now, there's a, a term that's used for these players, these players who come from the U.S. down to play in this league, which heretofore, in, in the past, had been restricted for for Mexican citizens, residents of Mexico. Um, and so what is that term? It's, a, it's kind of a somewhat derogatory thing they're called. Yeah, so uh, the term is pocho. And in certain cases, pocho can be used as kind of a derogatory term for a Mexican-American person, a person of Mexican-American heritage who has forgotten their Mexican roots. Maybe they don't speak Spanish, maybe they don't do that. In this league, it's, I mean, I ended up writing it into the story and trying to explain it because to even explain it as a derogatory term in the Mexican league is kind of a misnomer. It's the standard term. Every Mexican American player calls themselves that every other player refers to it. Executives, everyone kind of uses that term for the Mexican American player who has gotten uh, a Mexican passport and been able to count as a native player in the league. Yeah. There's a front office guy that you quote who says, that's one of my areas of work to look for pochos. Uh, he, he's a scout. Yeah. He's basically scouting uh, players in the United States who are eligible to come down and play for this team, the Tijuana Toros. Yeah, that, Armando is his name, and it's a, he's a fascinating character because he at first jokingly talked about how, you know, as any team, they have scouts around the country. You know, they have relationships with minor league coaches, things like that. But they're both scouting for talent and they're scouting for a possible Mexican grandparent or great grandparent. So, for example, this last year, the Armando was able to sign two Pocho players to play for the Tijuana Toros. And one of them was named Logan Watkins. The other was named Bo Amaral. Neither one presents the least bit like you would have Mexican heritage you know, neither one speaks Spanish, and yet uh, some coach or scout or something said, hey, I heard from this guy that he has a great-grandparent in the case of Bo Amaral or a grandparent in the case of Logan Watkins, who was born in Mexico. Right. This is also one of the reasons Mitt Romney was not that good. Uh, I think he's actually eligible, though. Um <laughs> All right, so uh, but weak arm. Let's face it. Um, yeah, so, on. <laughs> so so the, so different teams within this league have reacted to this trend in different ways. There's one team that you describe as kind of the New York Yankees of this league, who at least one time tried to reject this whole thing. Obviously, if you broaden your potential talent pool, you know, if you have you know, X thousand more possible people that you could cull and sort out and possibly recruit onto your team, you have an advantage. But at least one team, they were so, I don't know, I guess you could call, they would say they were nativists or something, but they just, they didn't like this idea and they just tried to, to go without. And so say a little bit more about that, Joseph. Definitely. The team from Mexico City, uh, 
who, yeah, explained as the Yankees of the league. His, his name's uh, Diablos Rojos. Uh, and they, as, you know, like the Yankees, they're the wealthiest team. They had won the most championships. They had the most established kind of pipeline of talent. They had uh, youth teams. They had great coaching throughout. They had basically like a, if you think of like a soccer team, like uh, the way Real Madrid will have a, the best under 13, the best, best under 18, all of that. So they had this amazing infrastructural advantage. And I think part of the pushback, which they recognized was this, you know, if the owners kind of split into the old school and this new school of owners, and it was for a long time, a perfect split, an existential problem for the league. You know, they weren't sure they were going to be able to make the rule change happen. And uh, the reason these older guard teams didn't want the change besides this, you know, Mexican pride and things like that is this idea that if you allow these new teams to find this loophole, this talent loophole, then suddenly there's going to be a reorganization of the league. And I think what we saw is that first season at first, uh, I mean, think about in the major leagues, if the Yankees said, we don't like this rule change, maybe we'll leave the league, which is what the Diablos Rojos were threatening. And uh, finally they agreed to play, but in protest, they said, we're, we're playing exclusively with native born Mexican players and for one of the first times in their history, they didn't make the playoffs that year. And in that same season, the Toros, who dove headfirst into this new new rule, signed almost 20 Mexican-American players to play for their team, ended up winning the championship. And it kind of explained to the league, all right, there's kind of a new way to play. It's changed the league. And for some people, it's changed it in a you know damaging way. Um, there's a term that you use for this guy, Manny Barreda, and the the life that he lived or the experiences that he had north of the border, too, participating in baseball. And, and I think it kind of runs through this piece, and it's actually a word that I, I like and am fascinated by, and that is liminal. It refers to thresholds. So uh, in U.S. locker rooms, you say Manny was kind of rather than being the guy who could speak Spanish and maybe build a bridge as he had hoped between Latinx players and uh, and the, the, the other players in the locker room, he was sort of caught in the middle. He really didn't belong entirely in either place. The, the Latino players thought he was, you know, he was born in the U.S. Uh, he had certain advantages that they didn't have if they were coming in from other countries. Um, and, but sort of the white players didn't necessarily cotton to him all that well either. Um, and so much of that story seems to take place on a threshold. Even his family, which has bounced back and forth, as you said, between different locations, but now they live kind of on the threshold of the border. They live in the United States. States, but you know, very, very close to the border. And then he goes and he plays in this league, and in a way, he's still kind of perched on a threshold, right? He's not exactly 100% welcomed, no matter how well he plays. That's true. I mean, I think with, uh, I don't think Manny is the only person to have this experience. I think it's a fascinating window into it. But there is this idea where, you know, he basically said, he told me the first time I ever really felt fully American was playing my first series in the South of Mexico. 
and suddenly I was the American player. You know, it was his outsiderness, his, you know, the fact of him not being Mexican that finally demonstrated him as a full American. I think for someone who was, I mean, he was born an hour and a half north of the border. He spent six months to the age of seven, 30 minutes south of the border, and then spent the rest of his adolescence and teenage years 30 minutes north of the border. This is the experience of border towns. There's, these are invisible lines in the ground. It's not as if on one side you're one thing, on the other side you're the other thing. So I think for Bereda, it's this experience where in his town in Arizona, 30 minutes north of the border, he was just, you know, a native of Amato. It was a town that was Spanish-speaking. Many first-generation or immigrant uh, Mexican families lived there. And then once he started playing high school baseball, started traveling around the state, he started to realize that, oh, we're the Mexican school. Mm. Not we're the Mexican-American school, not we're the Southern Arizona school, we're the Mexican school. And I think in that way, he starts to realize his outsider down by being shown these other ways in other places. All right. Well, we've actually, believe it or not, only scratched the surface of this story. It's a really fascinating story. I want a lot of you to go track it down. It's by Joseph Bean Khan, our guest, a Los Angeles-based writer. Uh, his uh, September 18th story for Jen, that's G-E-N, is Home and Away, American Ballplayers Are Flooding the Mexican League. And we will also link to that story from the webpage for this show, which you can get on wnpr.org slash Colin. Uh, I guess that's enough information. All right. Well, thanks for doing this, Joe. Joseph, and we are going to take a break, and we are going to ha- conclude with the the only segment of the show which really kind of maybe closely resembles co- normal coverage of sports, if there is such a thing. All right. So first of all, I have to thank Jonathan McPants for putting together today's show. He is the producer of this episode. Kyle Wolf is on the board making the show sound good. And tomorrow we'll be doing The Nose, our weekly cultural roundtable. The focal point, although we'll be talking about lots of different things, but uh, the focal point is going to be unbelievable. Uh, I don't mean that that's like an adjective to describe the focal point. That's the name of a series on Netflix. Uh, It's about um, a serial rapist, and it's based on an actual case in Colorado, a long, long hunt to figure out who was doing this or even to understand that one person was doing all of this, and also about uh, a woman, a very young woman living in Washington State who was not believed, uh, who was, uh, in fact, a victim of this person. Uh, All right, so we're going to now talk about baseball. The playoffs have started I don't know. It's like there's so much going on in the world, too, with like impeachment and stuff like that. It's kind of it's hard to keep up with sports, too. So if you're having a little struggle with this, we're going to put it all in a nutshell for you with Eric Steven, who writes about baseball and other things for SB Nation's news desk. Thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, happy to be here. Thanks for having me. So, I mean, let's just go through quickly through some pl- subplots here. Uh, I mean, even people who are only dimly aware of what's been going on in baseball all season may be aware of the fact that for some reason or other, baseballs are flying out of stadiums uh, at an unprecedented rate. They're like breaking the record for most home home runs in a month, like every month. What what? And does any has anybody ever decided or figured out what's going on here? 
Well, I, you know, there's a lot of talk that in the last few years of uh, players changing their approach. Front offices are a little more, um, they're willing to like accept the, the things that come with that, like higher strikeouts and players trying for home runs more often and they're succeeding and changing their swing patterns. But the real, real uh, sort of driver this year was the ball. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's been multiple studies, I believe, Meredith Wills, um, uh, did uh, a few definitive studies the last few years, and the, the seams on the ball, the the ball being slicker, and just um, multiple changes to the ball, even over like last year, um, have contributed mightily. And we saw it like an, even AAA started using Major League Baseballs this year, and they picked like a a very nice year to do it in terms of uh, <laughs> like spawning uh, offense. They they had a 57 percent increase in home runs year over year using this new sort of juiced ball. Um, so uh, very, very weird year for home runs. But, like, they just, you know, they like I said, they shattered every, you know, just about every possible home run record this year on a league level. The, the weird part is we haven't really seen, like, anyone truly challenge, like, you know, Barry Bonds, like, individual record. But it's, I think it's just there's just so many more people hitting home runs as opposed to maybe a few outliers hitting, like, 60 and 70. So let's talk a little bit about the postseason, which I guess includes last night. There was a wild card game. Some people characterize this as sort of the, the ultimate money ball game um, because even if you don't follow baseball, you probably know that Brad Pitt <laughs> was running the Oakland Athletics uh, at one point. So you had the A's versus the Rays. Both of these are kind of low payroll teams in an era where some of these other teams have just loaded up uh, paying insane amounts of money and luxury taxes and stuff like that. Yeah, two of the worst um, like stadiums uh, in the in the sport in terms of like you know uh, producing revenue and uh, we hear all the time both both cities are are trying or both teams are trying to get new stadiums uh, built and you know running into roadblocks with either uh, cities not willing to to pony up uh, you know or you know using taxpayer dollars and um, trying to find private investors that sort of thing. The Rays even talked earlier this year about getting permission to talk with Montreal as a possible like split deal with where they play some of their games in Tampa Bay and some in Montreal. I I can't figure out how that would even happen, but um, yeah. So them sort of succeeding despite this, they they've sort of had to try to outsmart everybody else. The problem is a lot of the richer teams, like we've seen the Dodgers, the Astros, the Yankees, even the Red Sox in, in recent years, sort of embrace this analytical approach and also combining it with money spent um, has really like made the, the jobs of Oakland and Tampa Bay and those type of teams much harder. But the, the fact that they're still sort of finding ways to succeed is pretty, pretty fascinating. Um, so uh, among the teams that really have good chances, I think the Rays now have the exquisite privilege of going to play the Houston Astros, who look like they're going to be very, very tough to beat in this series. They also include a Connecticut hero, George Springer. How good are the Astros this time? Well, I mean, look, they, they've been, I think, the best overall team the last three years. They've won 100 games at least every every single year. They won the, the championship in 2017. This is probably their best team of the three i think um you know i think what you have is the thing that jumps out is their rotation is ridiculously top loaded they um garrett cole and justin verlander are going to finish going to finish one two in the cy young that you know there's a chance they might split it who knows if that's how it breaks out but they should get like all the first place votes and 
just having really great seasons. And then they went and added like Zach Greinke, who is also a fantastic pitcher, and he's their third starter. He'd be the ace on most other, like even playoff teams. And the fact that they're they're so deep in their rotation, but they're they combine that with like um, like a pretty historically great offense. If you look at it like adjusted for park and league, these are offenses that are like on par with like the big red machine of the 70s and just historically great offense uh, with an awesome pitching staff. They have to be the favorites, not only to win that series, but also to win it all. But, you know, we've seen this in baseball, like um, just because you're the favorites doesn't always mean you win, but uh, it does make for some, some compelling drama. And there's like, there's 400 win teams in in the postseason this year. So uh, we've never seen that before. Uh, so there's a lot of competition out there, which which sort of makes it all great. So I'm sitting here in Connecticut. Um, my favorite team is the Red Sox. My second favorite team is the Yankees losing. Um, <laughs> so this is it's Yankees, Twins. And Twins are kind of, you know, we don't see them in the playoffs all that much. What chance do they have against the Yankees? Well, you know, we looked this year um the Twins, the Yankees' big thing is power. They set the major league record with with uh, most home runs hit last year. <laughs> to show you how big the home run boom was this year, four teams broke that this year, including the Yankees. They even hit over 300 home runs. But what the Twins did this year, they out-homered the Yankees. Was, they had 307 home runs. The Yankees had 306. Uh, the, the Twins have a ridiculously deep lineup. Like um, any given night, they'll have – eight players in their lineup who hit 20 home runs. They have, um, you know, three guys who hit 30. They have, or actually, no, they, I'm sorry, they have five guys who hit 30. That, that's never been done before. Um, so they're going to out-homer you. Uh, and, you know, the Yankees and the Twins have a, um, a history in the postseason, and it's basically the Yankees dominating the Twins. But if you look at it, like, these Twins have had a massive, like, turnover. They, they added Nelson Cruz. Um, Jonathan Scope this year. Uh, Mitch Garver is relatively new um, in terms of being a productive sort of regular for them. Uh, so it's not necessarily these old, the old twins, you know, um, facing their big brothers and the Yankees. This is a, a pretty well-oiled machine uh, they have going there in Minnesota. So they actually have a chance against the Yankees, I think, um, especially with the Yankees pitching, um, you know, being a little suspect. I mean, they're not, they're a great team as well, but uh, don't quite have the Astros level pitching, so that's going to be the sort of their Achilles heel, I think, in the postseason. All right, Eric Steven, we got to go. You've been great. Eric Steven writes about baseball and other things for SB Nation's news desk. Thank you for listening. Watch a little baseball. It's the American pastime, you know. Be a good citizen.